You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today is, is Monday, September 14th. I'm here today with my colleague, uh, Virgil Store. Thank you very much for coming on, Virgil. Um, and uh, this is, uh, we're going to have a conversation about uh, contributions to um, economic sociology and mainly social science, uh, how you and I kind of understand it. It's, there's no economics, there's no economic sociology, there's nothing, there's just social science. And how we go about trying to do this and with an emphasis on your, your work, uh, starting, uh, as I uh, said to you, with your work on uh, Caribbean economic development. And so I see that as you're trying to view economic relationships within a certain cultural frame of reference, uh, understanding Caribbean economic development, in particular, uh, how the cultural frame impacts the uh, op uh, understanding of individuals of the opportunities that they face for realizing betterment. And so if you could describe that first book of yours and uh, how you went about uh, pursuing that. Yeah, no, absolutely. First, uh, thanks for having me. It's just very cool that you're doing this. And so to your, your question, and, and if my answers go too long, stop me. If my answers are too short, probe, and just okay. sort of, we can do sure. it like that. Okay, so that book. The, my questions, um, and this is, a, this is a old Pete Becky line that's, that's I'm sure not even, you know, that sort of probably even dates back before you, but my questions all come from looking out the window. And so I'm someone who grew up in the Bahamas, but I spent my entire adult life in the United States. And so as someone with that kind of experience, what was one thing that was particularly striking to me was how different economic life was in the Bahamas than economic life was in the United States. And, and so my dissertation, my first book, was really an attempt to understand the unique uh, economic life in the Bahamas. And... Um, importantly, why that economic life was so different. And, and so my answer was culture. It wasn't institutions. And the reason it wasn't institutions is because the US and the Bahamas share a lot of the same institutions. Uh, that there wasn't really institutional variation that they were sort of, you know, a common law British experience that sort of dated back, you know, since Columbus, I guess. And so, and so you had this, you had these, these, you know, sort of same institutional environments, private property rule of law persisted, you know, courts, independent courts, independent. And so it wasn't going to be that. And so it ended up being, for at least I ended up arguing that it was culture. And I shouldn't say culture just generally, because it's not just culture, right? It's culture as Weber talked about culture in the Protestant ethic and, and the way that, say, Clifford Goetz talked about culture in Princes and Peddlers or the interpretation of, of cultures. And so that's culture um, not as a tool. It's culture not as a hammer. It's not culture not as something that you pick up and use to, you know, perform some task. And then when it, that task is, is performed, that you um, sort of put it away, right? So it's not the kind of culture that you could shove into a regression, for instance, right? Like you would you'd shove, 
you know, sort of the number of trucks in a country or something like that in inter um, a regression. Um, and so instead it was culture as this lens through which you saw the world. It was, the, it was what Gertz called webs of significance, right? It's the sort of constellation of meanings and individuals attached to their actions and to their circumstances. Uh, and so my first book was really this attempt to identify and explain what Faber called the economic spirits that would allow us to make sense of economic life in the Bahamas. I ended up identifying two. One you could call a, you know, I won't use the terms, but one was a, a, a sort of an economic spirit that sort of, you know, led people to believe that success, they got success through hard work. Uh, the other was a, an economic spirit that led them to believe that um, you got success through trickery or through, you know, sort of, you know, you know being a, a trickster. And so, and then I tried to make sense about how those economic spirits interacted with one another um, and, and also how they, they, they came about. Um, and then since that book, which is, you know, was you know, a decade and a half ago, I've sort of continued Don't to say work that. on this. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it, I was thinking about it earlier today. I was like, I cannot believe that I've been dealing with this. You know, my first book on this was 2004 and yeah. my most recent book on this was 2020. Yeah. Right? So it's been, you know, a long time that I've tried, been trying to make sense of this. And, 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 and so either I'm doing a, a good job in getting traction or I'm failing miserably and having to go back and, and yeah, yeah. take new and new bites of the apple. But since then, it's been trying to understand, you know, that first book was, you know, trying to, to make sense of the Bahamas' economic situation. And then since then, I've really been trying to understand why so few economists think culture is important and why the ones who think culture is important think about it so differently um, than I do. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get to a methodological question, but I'm, I'm also wondering, you know, so Weber makes this distinction between formal, formal and substantive rationality. And I'm wondering if the frames of reference, webs of meaning, uh, you know, I'm reminded when you, you invoke Gertz on the webs of meaning that that also is, Doug North said, you know, we don't tell me that people respond rationally to incentives until, until you tell me what they mean by the incentives that are around them. And yeah. so that's the same kind of thing. I wonder if, if part of the resistance is that it's easy for us to think of formal rationality and so much more difficult for us to think about substantive rationality in some serious way, as opposed to just putting it in a box that we then translate it back into formal rationality. Yeah, so I think that's true. I think it's also that we don't, we worry about what the implications are if we go too far down this road, right? And so it is very clean to say it's, it's you know, sort of prices and profit and loss all the way down. Right. Right, that's a very clean, it offers you a very clean answer. We sort of can, you know, tease out the implications of that. Right. But that sort of makes a lot of sense to us. That it gets really scary, I think, in some sense, when we say, look, well, what are we really assuming about culture when we say something like say Hayek says where he says look you know that you know prices signal to you know actors whether or not the tin is more dear and then they know how to behave and all those kinds of stuff but we're assuming that those actors are actually seeing those prices and 
that the meaning that those prices and price changes are um, meant to signal are actually being read in the in the accurate way by the actors. Yeah, so there's no I, distortions I mean, there, I'm, and that's I'm, I think what worries. I'm I'm neck deep in reading about Baber, which I think at the moment the students will be reading as well, and so the discussion there is well about rationality as something that evolves. It's a variable as opposed to an assumption. Yeah. And, you know, so like the nature of what it means to engage in economic calculation, which is what Hayek is assuming there with that tin example, is a function of, you know, what does it mean to have survivorship in that, that particular institutional milieu or context? Uh, let, I'll come back to this, yeah. but let me ask you a methodological question, which I think that in many ways you were a pioneer of. Um, I mean, I guess McCloskey had already been pushing in this direction, but within the Austrian community, uh, which was to, to methodologically in trying to study first person accounts, you also uh, made reference to literature and other kinds of, not as a, as you put it before, as a, as a tool, but actually as this sort of residue of what the, the culture was, was, what were the challenges and pitfalls in, in addressing that kind of issue? Yeah. So that's so, given the trickster aspect of your story. That's really kind of where that comes out in, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. And so, you know, so the, the just so to give people context. And so, the a popular folktale in the Bahamas is this um, folktale about um, Barabi. That, you know, Barabi is how it sort of got translated here. It sort of exists in a number of places, but it really was the dominant folktale in the, in the Bahamas. And that, that, that Barabi figure is the story that's told to Bahamian kids over and over and over, you know, to, to this day, but, you know, even maybe even more so when I was a kid and, and even more so before that. Is a is is sort of is this figure that succeeds by you know sort of tricking the other person, right? The 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 it's not about working hard or whatever. It's about using your wits and, and sort of getting over on the other person. Because um, the game's and, rigged against you anyway. Yeah, because right? the game's rigged against you, and so you might as well cheat the game in, in some sense. And so, and so that that's that figure, and that one of the clearest places then. You know, so I'm arguing and end up arguing in that in those first set of projects that that kind of spirit of rabbiism, you know, sort of existed and, and sort of informed in some sense. Um, you know, you sort of see that played out in the in the, the nature of entrepreneurship that sometimes engaged in in the Bahamas. Um, and so I was trying to figure out, you know, so how do you get at that? How do you how do you understand? And one way to do that was sort of these close weeds of the cultural text that are salient in the in the in the communities. And so you talk about pitfalls. That they're, they're, um, the two um, that I want to, I, I think I want to point to. But then there's one big advantage that I sort of want to make sure I get to. Yeah. Uh, the one is that it is is how it's perceived by other economists. That's one pitfall. That you know that that you 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 risk the experience um, that I've had in my in life where you have different economists arguing over whether or not you're doing economics. And sort of when you when you're doing that, that that's. Um, for someone like me who thinks that I'm in the business of doing social science, that's less of a concern, but I understand that could be a, a, a concern. Um, and the second one is it's genuinely harder to do. That if you're, that, that it is, it is as someone who's, so I've written the papers that have the regressions in it and what have you, and those are actually really easy to do. 
the data set comes, you know, often pre, you know, cleaned and, and what have you, and that the, the kinds of, you know, statistical tests that you, quote unquote tests that you do on them are really straightforward. And, you know, they you sort of pop up, this actually takes work, right? And so, you, and so those are two, in some sense, challenges, pitfalls, whatever. But there's one big strength that I think that it has over all those other, you know, all the other approaches that we might have. And it's that it gets at meaning. And that Oz, you know, that is, you know, Mises has taught us and Hayek has taught us and, and sort of others that particularly here at Mason we think of as being sort of, you know, key figures in the way we think about economics have taught us that Oz is a science of meaning. Yeah. And so if we actually care about meaning, then we've got to, um, you know, sort of reference the text that, that, that you know, contain and, um, you know, express those meanings. And so that's an advantage that I think trumps the, 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 the challenges, right? Yeah. So in the early 90s, I had the great opportunity. I, I ended up by not getting the offer, but I was uh, uh, shortlisted and I got invited down uh, to Princeton for this fellowship. And I saw Albert Hirschman give a talk, which eventually led to his uh, essay called uh, that was published in World Development called Industrialization uh, and its Discontent, East, West, North, and South. And what he did was he looked at the contemporary literature at the time, and which is when they were going through like their version of the Industrial Revolution. So imagine if you, if you think of the Industrial Revolution as having different timing points of when you see the, the hockey stick. And what he did was look at the literature at that time, right? And what he did was found out that as he put it, everyone kvetched. <laughs> no one, no one liked it. Well, part of that, and, and but what's interesting is that he he used that not to get at a meaning in some sense, but as a tool to study uh, why it is that uh, you know that might exist, uh, even though it's having all this great experience. I, I remember sitting in the room. I thought it was awesome, and I enjoyed it, and. I was the only one really among the economists that was like into talking to him about it. Um, so it was, it was very fascinating for me, but what he wanted to understand was uh, 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 blaming. So the reason why is because the only literary class that was writing were the upper class who were losing their, you know, power to the lower classes or whatever and that kind of stuff. But the way that I see what you're doing or what McCloskey tries to do uh, in her work is to capture uh, kind of what the average person, the, the, what you would call the folk religion, yeah. uh, maybe of a society or the folk ways of the everyday life. And so in that regard, I see it very similar to the, the projects. Uh, I'm going to get to a question very quickly. That's in uh, like studying the Russian economy yeah. uh, or the Soviet economy, where you want to get at the everyday life of people and so you sort of see the way that they tell stories about their everyday life to sort of get at like how it is that they organize things. But what's fascinating is that I actually think that the Sovietologist had it easier to explain to other economists about what I was capturing as opposed to the development economists. And as you were talking, I was just thinking about that, like the legitimacy aspect of it. And I'm wondering, why that might be, do you think? Or is that a conclusion that's already baked in, which makes us 
be more susceptible to it. Because no one writes about how wonderful life is like in the Soviet Union in everyday life, right? And so it reinforces maybe built-in prejudices, whereas the other one, it's like, oh, if they just had markets and, you know, the puzzle of Bahamas, as you said, is that they share a lot of the same formal institutions. Yeah. So why shouldn't they share the same kind of formal economic development process? Yeah. Yeah, no, I thought, so I don't know, I don't know that I have a good answer for, for that question. I think what you, what you describe is actually has been my experience. I think it may be um, in part because I think we reached conclusions about how awful the Soviet system was a long time ago, as you said, and that, and and so we 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 the, the sort of we agreed, and so that and so that so when you turn to the literature, it was telling you the same thing as it was telling you when you looked at. Yeah. Um, sort of a close look at what was actually going on in the in, in the economy and and development has been um, it's it's been messy for a very long time the conventional wisdom and economics has changed on right. what it takes a bunch um, and that some of those um, starts and so like one of the things that's that's that, that sort of if you sort of like think about my work that that um, and and why sort of the way I talk, I sort of, I want to talk about culture um, is, is actually going to be problematic for some development economists, right? And so you, you, so you think about somebody like a Lawrence Harrison, right? Who's a, you know, who's a, right. you know, sort of had worked in development for a while and then, and then and, and sort of econ development for a while um, at agencies and then wanted to shut into them. That he makes a claim, the following claim, he says, look, there's just, there are two kinds of cultures. There's progress resistant and progress prone cultures. So basically they're good cultures and bad cultures. And the good cultures are the ones that allow you to develop and the bad cultures are the ones that prevent you from developing, right? And that's his, his argument. Yeah. Well, if you say like, um, you know, Gertz argued, the culture isn't a tool. The culture is a thing that colors um, and shades are sort of experiences in the world, but it isn't something that blocks or blinds us to some and, and not to others, that that, that, change, that that changes that answer, that makes that answer not as clean as answers that, as, as a Harrison would want, right? And so that's, so I think that's one. And then the, the, for somebody who doesn't want to talk about culture at all, again, this sort of goes back to our earlier question, that if you start saying, no, 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 it's the meaning that people attach to the institutions that's gonna matter, um, and all you want to do is say, no, we need to change the institutions. Well, that could be a circumstance that, that, that you know, that, that where we get at um, the kind of phenomena that, that you, Pete, and, and Chris talk about in, in the institutional stickiness paper, right? That, you've, that, you're, that you're pretending as if people are reading this institution in one way, and in Jesus. fact, they're reading this institution in an entirely different way. That isn't to say that these people, this group of people can't have institutions that promote development, but then it means that they have to be ones that resonate and that um, can be read into that culture in a way that makes sense for them. Yeah. Yeah, they, um, yeah, and Harrison and other people like that, it, 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 culture becomes a whip uh, to uh, rank societies as opposed yep. to something to understand. Um, and uh, yeah, I like, I like the way you put that in the sense that 
Um, culture is not like a tool. Um, it's uh, it, it's it's the way you it's your eyeglasses that you're wearing. Yeah. But even there, that's not quite right because it's not eyeglasses that you choose to wear. Yeah. It's eyeglasses that you've just been born with in yeah, some sense. Right. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So uh, this is actually going to get to your point about <laughs> resistance because you uh, uh, are the leading scholar, I would say, in, in the Austrian uh, school of thought that is focused on economic sociology. I think one of the things that you and I are both puzzled about is that we can even say that as a field because in many ways, Austrian economics is economic sociology, if you, uh, but let's just leave it that way. But one of the, the biggest resistance, Don faced, Don Lavoy, our teacher faced this as well, is from also one of our biggest heroes, which is Israel Kirzner, who of all people in many ways should be the most prepared to understand these things because he lived, he's lived in two worlds at once in a very similar way that, that, that you have. I mean, yeah. his home life and his social life is based on Orthodox Judaism. And he lives in, a, in an Orthodox community. And then he gets on a train and moves to Manhattan to then teach economics, modern economics. And he has to go back and forth between these two worlds uh you know one world that doesn't have a tv doesn't have you know anything and then another world in which you have all of the modern conveniences anyway i was just was wondering if you could maybe talk about some of your interactions with traditional economists in this sense i mean (laughs) traditional austrian economists but maybe you know even other economists but also then talking with traditional sociologists about trying to bring economics to bear and the interaction effect that you've had in both of those scenarios. Yeah, and so you mentioned um, um, Israel. The, well, so I'll tell you a story. I don't mean I, I'll try not to make it story story time. But I, but I, um, so I'm an Austrian economist, right? That's, how, that's sort of how I think about myself. And so for an Austrian economist, particularly one of my generation, you having arrived meant that you got an opportunity to be invited to the seminar at NYU to present a paper. But if that if that happened, it meant that you you know you were being you you were admitted into the club, right? And so, um, and so this happened. I get invited to um, you know a couple years out of graduate school, getting invited to give a paper at this at this seminar, and, you know, and Miz was in all the usual suspects. Of, Israel can't come, right? And so he so he he doesn't come. It's a disappointment, but I had a great time. It's, it's sort of good experience that I was one of the people that. Mario took to, to, you know, out to coffee afterwards, which meant right. that my paper didn't suck. He actually liked it, wanted to talk more <laughs> about it. I wasn't one of the people who sort of got sent to the train. So it was, it was a great experience. And a couple of weeks later, I get a, a, a letter, four-page letter from, um, from Israel. Oh, my goodness. This is wonderful letter from Israel. Um, and I open it up, and the, the first paragraph is the paragraph you'd want to have Kersner Right, you, you know, he talked about, you know, he regretted missing the talk, but he read my paper very carefully and he thought it was you know, sort of interesting and he had sort of like this praise for the, for the paper and, and, you know, this scholarly and clear that I was thoughtful, all these kinds of things. Um, and then he said, um, but of course, you know, this is outside the scope of economics, right? And then he proceeded to explain to me why this wasn't just outside the scope of economics, but potentially 
disastrous for sort of future civilization. So it was yeah. a, a kind of mixed bag in terms of the letter. But I, but I think that the, but I think one of the things that he was getting at, which is a traditional view, it's an interesting view that for, for Austrian as a whole, but I think it's a traditional view, is that um, our, you know, praxeology is, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, you know, the science of, of human action. Um, and within the science of human action, there is a branch called economics that is its most developed branch. And that these other, and so that means that there's within praxeology, there's a range of other things that we should talk about maybe, you know, as praxeologists, but aren't economics. Right. Narrowly defined. And so I think one of the, I think a lot of Austrians hold on, Austrian economists hold on to that that they'll, they'll pay lip service to our praxeologists, but what they really are is they're Economist. petitioners of the most developed branch within praxeology economics. Right. Right. And so that that's, a, and so I think that's one of the things that, that sort of has created that. And so I've tried, um, the way I've, I've navigated it is just to sort of not sort of worry about that. Right. <laughs> that, and so this is an, an sec, like, I don't, I, you know, I've tried, so when I when I pick up, I was gonna say when I pick up pen to write, but it's like you know when I sort of launch in a blank word document, it's because I have a puzzle about the world that I'm trying to figure out, and I want to sort of understanding it. And writing about it helps me to get clarity on that on that right. puzzle, right? And so that's the reason why I write. And so it's a, it's an effort to understand the world. It's an effort to track truth. It's not a not even an effort really to persuade. And so then right. you go, okay, well, you know, that stuff is to find an outlet. You want outlets for your work. That, that's my profession or whatever like that. And there, I think my approach is just to be sort of recognize that the bar is going to be higher and then meet the, meet the higher bar. I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer. but No, no, I, I love that answer, actually, because even in something very personal, like, you know, I, this summer I ended up by, you know, putting out a collection of my writings and I wrote a new introduction inclusion for it. And it's a very, um, I attempted to, to really address um, issues of, of our current situation in the United States, but it actually started out not in any effort to convince anyone other than myself because I was completely puzzled and I remain completely puzzled because I have a vision of what liberalism is about and I have a vision about approximations to liberalism and it turns out that those approximations fundamentally undermine the liberal project as I understand it. And so I'm confused and I'm trying to share that confusion and then try to be clear to other people what I think the liberal vision is as opposed to even trying to persuade anyone. I just want to have like clarity in my own head. And I think a large part of that is is actually how we do everything that we do. Um, I mean, this is a kind of a Polanyi point about commitment. And then, and then there's other, we have to communicate with other people. So it's a two-way conversation, but it's really a kind of a one-way conversation that starts everything. And then the question is, is afterwards as opposed to, so I guess this is, a, it's an important lesson for students to not be literature driven because then you're letting the conversation be dictated to you by mm -hmm. other people, as opposed to just being curious about the world. Like you want 
the world to, or curious about scholarship. Like you read arguments and you find them puzzling. So then you want to study them more rather than the idea that, Oh, what was the latest article in the AER? I'm going to address that or something. Yeah. Is that, is that what you would? Yeah. That, that, I think that's right. Like I, I the, the, I end so like personally, I end up always starting with the question, right? Like I said, I look out, you know, it's like, this is this thing that, that this makes no sense to me or this, or this makes perfect sense to me. It doesn't seem to make any sense to anybody else. Right. right. And so how do I adjudicate that kind of thing? But, but I don't, I don't ever start with, let me read all, I think I'm interested in markets. Let me read all the literature on markets and then figure out what, no one said yet, right? Yeah. Like that may be a strategy once you've sort of got your argument down or whether that may be a strategy for framing it to get it to fit into some outlet or something like that. Right. But that's a different, that's once at a different stage. Yeah. yeah, that's at a different stage. Um, let, me, let me push you a little bit on the, on the flip side of that. So we okay. know the Kersner story. Do you have a sociologist story analogous? Yeah, so it's, it's um, so I've, I've actually had um, good experiences on the other side. And I think um, in the sense that I've had um, the, if you, so like, this, that's, like f forgive this one, but like if you, if you sort of look at who blows my books or whatever, there's often, often sociologists, sometimes, you know, prominent sociologists that, that have sort of read it and decided they wanted to say um, something nice about it. And that that's, I think, because um, one of the things that I do, or I try to do, which is if I'm, say, speaking to a sociology audience, that I try to, I, I, you know, I, I don't publish sociological arguments in economics journals and try to sort of get away with it that way, right? So that you can sort of get away with mischaracterizing what you know, yeah. the field is about and what they're and sort of pretending like you've met standards that you might not have met that one of the things i've tried to do is if i'm you know talking to if i'm making a sociological argument um that i'm trying to get it into a sociology journal and that's usually where where those things end up right and so that they set the bar on what counts as a quality you know an argument that's good enough to to you know to be a part of their discourse um, and that, you know, again, it's higher for me because I'm an outsider and I'm making an argument. I'm bringing in these ideas that are also from outside of the discipline. So that's fine, but I try to do that. And so I think one of the things that they've, you know, sort of when they respond to me, it's all, it's always with a kind of, um, in some sense, appreciation. Like you took yeah. us seriously enough to, to, to try to meet our bar, not to be in these economic journals just saying stuff about us, about what we yeah, got yeah. wrong or something like that. That's very good. I, I, uh, that's a very important insight. I had a debate with our teacher, Don, when he created his, uh, you know, program on social and organizational learning. Um, the original idea was that they were going to create an institute for advanced study uh, kind of idea and escape economics, the straitjacket of economics. And they kept on calling what they called at the time interdisciplinary trespassing. <clears throat> they were going to engage in interdisciplinary trespassing. And this is a big word that Jack High used all the time. And I told Don, I said, Don, I said, you know, 
there's a real problem with interdisciplinary work as opposed to multidisciplinary work. And so what you do is multidisciplinary work as opposed to interdisciplinary work. There's, uh, you know, the lack of standards is not what's going on. You have to meet the standard of the people that you're trying to engage in, even though that is quite frustrating at times, yeah. you know? And uh, so anyway, it's, I, I really like the way you put that. Um, I would have thought you would have might have had a little bit more resistance by sociologists, but I think also that might be a difference in temperament between you and I, um, because my problem is, as, and it's always been, is that when I'm in a room of sociologists, I all of a sudden scream Gary Becker. <laughs> when I'm in a room of Gary Beckers, I all of a sudden, you know, am embracing like, you know, Clifford Gertz or something right. like that. And so I have this kind of weird contrarianism aspect and I want to see the, the, the overlap of those things. But I worry so much when I'm in a world of sociologists and they don't tend to stress scarcity and trade-offs and these kind of other things. And then I'm in a, you know, all kinds of hurt when I'm in a world of economists and they want to say, you know, maximizing an equilibrium all the time. And so... You know, maybe that's just me and you negotiate a lot yeah, better. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, but you're the, like, you don't ever turn off the teacher in some sense, right? And so when people, so that's an error, right? If you're talking about the world and you're not that's paying true. attention to scary, that's a mistake. Yeah. Right? And so um, if you're, and so I think I'm more comfortable with people making that mistake so we could have the other conversation, maybe. Yes. We want to get into our psychology. That's actually a good way to put it, I think, yeah. Is that, um, yeah, you don't know how many times I had a, a fight with Don over whether or not the term should be laws or principles, <laughs> right? About <laughs> economic laws or economic principles. Yeah. And, and I'm like, come on, Don, they're laws, <laughs> economic laws, you know, economic principles. But yeah, so, um, but, it, and that tells you a lot that, yeah. that we would, argue about that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I want to get to a really important contribution that you've made, but push you a little bit on it just because of my own curiosity. And, and, and maybe this relates to what we were just doing here. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to summarize it rather than, than make a big uh, deal. But one of the things that you've done is you flipped, you, you've made a major contribution in focusing on the issue of the market as a social space. And in particular, the idea that markets are arenas to develop our intimate relationships and friendships and uh, social bonds uh, that are involved. And many times when people talk about markets from Smith to Hayek or whatever, it's about this extended order, about the mystery of the market being cooperation and anonymity. We're able to cooperate with all these people that none of us know, never will never know, or whatever. And one of the things that you point out is that a lot of market relationships are not really defined that way. We become close personal friends with the person that is our real estate agent or whoever, right? Or these kind of uh, issues here. And so I guess that uh, I want to ask you an intellectual history question, where, which is, how do you square Smith's two books in your mind? Mm -hmm. uh, because maybe that's the answer to what's going on. Or how do you square Hayek's discussion of intimate and extended orders? Because maybe that's what's going on. 
or how do you see the relationship between your market as a social space and the broader notion of social cooperation on a division of labor and all the things that are required for that. So, yeah. So, I mean, so I think it comes down at some level to, um, and like where that project began really is, is this sort of notion about what, what we as economists should be trying to understand. Right. And, and to me, that one key question that we as um, you know, people engaged in economics of catalactics should be trying to understand is how it is that individuals actually experience the market. The, the, you know, and that people experience- That goes back to your meaning point. Yeah, right. And so people experience the market as a space where exchange happens for sure. So exchange is, is, is critical, fundamental. In fact, if there was an exchange, there wouldn't be a market. And so people experience the market as a space where exchange happens. And they experience the market as a space where competition happens for sure, right? That, you know, that, that you know, buyers are competing with each other over, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the TV on Black Friday, right? And, and then you sort of see it as maybe it's its most crass form. And certainly, you know, the, you know, com, you know, sellers are competing with each other for buyers, right? And so, you know, they certainly experience it as a space of, of competition, but they also experience it as, as a space where social interactions occur. Right, yeah. that that's actually part of our experience in the market. That it would be very odd to imagine a market um, without that going on. Right, that if right. you um, and, and that's true um, are at you know sort of you know sort of the family restaurant that we that we frequent. That if that if the owner of that restaurant didn't say, "Hey, how you doing? It's good to see you again. How's your kid? How's You're not in with the, whatever." That would be a a strange experience. We would be bothered by that, but that happens on the the stock market as as well, which we think of as being the the sort of thinnest kind of interactions, right? If the person on the other end of the phone, that they end up developing relationship. The person on the phone says, "Hey, I need you to do this. Trust me." Right. That you know, you make this trade on my behalf for you know millions of dollars, and I'll make you whole at the end of the day. That's a that 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 social content gets formed around that relationship for that to work too, right? Yeah. That, that, and, and this is, and so I don't actually, I guess, see it as different from Mike, because Hayek's point with the, you know, when he talks about the Cadillacs, he's turning strangers into friends. The last part of that is the into friends, right? And so our relationships, yes, you know, we get to have this extended order that's awesome right. because, you know, without knowing you, I could walk into a, 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 a store, I can make a trade with you. But if it, but one of the cool things about markets is that that relationship that began on the thinnest of margins can develop all this thick social content, right? And that that's actually, in some sense, critical for the further success of, of it, right? That that you don't typically see, um, you know, that you know, sort of you know, huge interactions, huge trades happening that remain thin, right? And we see this more so in some cultures than others, right? We see this in some cultures where they, they ritualize the whole business relationship such that it builds on this kind of social content and social meaning in order to do that. Do, do you think it would make, um, so that it might be a difference between, uh, so what's wrong with standard uh, uh, idealizations of markets by economists? I'll get to Weber in a second, yeah. but 
idealizations by economists is that individuals are atomistic, all right, and markets are impersonal, right? That's what you're challenging. Um, the puzzle that Smith points out, which is that scarce in our lifetime do we have, but to make a few close personal friends, but yet we rely on the cooperation of a great multitude for our daily survival. That puzzle still exists. It's just that it's not defined by atomism and impersonalism. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. right? But, but Smith said a lot of things, right? And that, and that we should sort of remember that Smith said a lot of things. That... So you take, so the, yeah, I mean, but take the theory yeah. of moral sentiments. From the very first page, he reminds us, he teaches us that we're social creatures and right. that our social connections matter. So that's from the very beginning of that project straight through is that we're social creatures, right? The, the, that's sort of a part of it. The NTMS2, um, you know, he makes the point. He talks about... Um, um, people working together become like brothers that, that, that he actually makes that point in the, in TMS. And then like, you sort of take something like that, that might point to a kind of atomism where he talks about the spheres of sympathy, right? And he talks about, look, you know, or, you know, we would be more disturbed if something happened to our finger than if sort of an earthquake wiped out, you know, a huge sort of population say in China or what have you that, and that sort of suggests that we're able to, you know, we have these spheres of sympathy where we care less and less about people, the more social distant we come. Well, one of the things he doesn't talk about explicitly, but one of the things that it turns out is the case is that markets increase our spheres of sympathy. And so an earthquake happened in China and cotton growers in the United States send money. Why yeah. did they send money? Because they, they had an economic tie with, um, you know, they had an economic tie with people in that region of China who made textiles. Yeah. And so they saw themselves as being connected with them in a particular way. The same thing happened in reverse when Houston gets flooded. Right. Um, and the, 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 the counterparts around the world are sending aid because they view themselves as being connected with that. So it's not that, 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 that I think that Smith is wrong there, but I think he misses a, a sort of, he, he, I mean, he misses a, a, a kind of point. And so even and so that's one, and the wealth of nations, right? So you make, you make the, the point, right? You know, we depend on a bunch of others, but scarcely have an occasion to make but a few friends, right? That I guess he's silent though on the spaces where we might make those few friends. Right. Right. And that one of those spaces where we might make those few friends, I want to argue is um, sort of in markets. And so interestingly for someone like Smith who cared about, the wealth of nations, he misses what, you know, as social beings, which is an important thing that we value, which is the sort of the origins of these social functions. And in fact, it's rooted in the very same things. And so, you know, so why would something like the division of labor promote this, right? Well, okay, so what's happening in division of labor? The, it's, it's taking a bunch of people who are you know, performing the same kinds of tasks, often with the same kinds of experiences ahead of time in the same sorts of backgrounds and is putting them in a, in a workspace together to produce a product. Yeah. That those, that that sort of screening feature doesn't produce a kind of friendship isn't, you know, is in some sense, lots of, you know, we'd be surprising if it didn't, right? That, 
why are you and I friends? In part, we met at a university. Why did we meet at a university? We were both two people who cared about ideas. Yeah, we shared. <laughs> yeah. So we got put in this space. We would have never met if it wasn't for the, the, this sort of market space that we that we had because you would have been Josie, I would have been someplace else. I, I see that point. I, I'm, I'm, I guess that, so I, I don't ever see the conflict between the TMS and the Wealth of Nations. I see him as, as sort of examining two halves of a coin. And so, but I, maybe what the issue is, is as, so as the way Don Lavoie puts it in National Economic Planning, what is left, you have these three coordinating mechanisms tradition, market, and plan. And a lot of people associate the kind of intimate social bonds as tradition, right? And markets in many ways are viewed as a substitute for that. But really what they are is not a substitute, but they build on that. And that maybe the reason why planning became attractive was because a, a complement was was presented as a substitute. Or so something. I guess, yeah, so I, I wanna, so let me, let me actually push back a little bit. Yeah. I think it's actually an error to associate um, these deep social relationships with tradition. What could be colder than a, like, so imagine being a young um, girl in, one of those sort of traditional communities? Are you yeah, seen, yeah. are you heard, are you given voice? Are you allowed to fully participate? Is anybody recognizing your values or your worth or your yeah, interests yeah, yeah. or anything like that? No, yeah. right? Yeah, like that's actually a very thin relationship. You are only a role in that context. You are, and that the, the person in charge is, is also just a role. You're not recognizing them as some loving father with interests or whatever like that. That's actually very thin. The, that you you actually need in some sense the move to markets to actually get the kinds of thick rich relationships that that we have right where we say oh I, I think of my daughter and I think of, of somebody who isn't just you know in a role to me but is an actual person who I care about her sentiments and her feelings and her interests right that that actually is something that requires markets that's not something that's uh, alien to markets and tradition actually locks that off because yeah. I couldn't. So ima again, imagine me being a father wanting to parent like how I parent now in the 18th century. Yeah. I, I couldn't do it. That that would be forbidden in some sense because I would be stepping outside the role that I'm supposed to have vis-a-vis -vis, um, my kid who's only in that instance supposed to be, you know, a ward until I can marry her off or something like that. So we're in the class at the moment, we're finishing up section on Weber and you just recently published this paper which relates to these issues on Weber and and uh, the idealization of the market in contrast to the tradition. Um, maybe you can just summarize that paper a little bit. I mean you've already kind of done yeah. so already but yeah. Yeah so Weber actually it's interesting. So Weber if you're talking about the one on the impersonalization of the, the market. Yep. And the, yeah okay so Weber um, is interesting in that when he goes, goes to do his theoret quote unquote, theoretical work on the way that markets work, he actually talks about it in the thinnest economistic terms that you can imagine, right? That he, he actually says, look, the market, you know, the market is the most impersonal space that one can um, imagine that it's, it sort of cuts against and goes against fraternal bonds and all these kinds of things that all that matters is the, 
um, is, is, is the trade and what have you. And so he talks, he has this ideal type of- Calculation. Of, yeah, he has this ideal type of the market that is very, very thin and that takes away all this sort of, all this sort of stuff that, that, that we've been talking about. Um, but um, Solomon and I argue in that paper, if you look at when he actually goes to talk about actual markets, so he's not theorizing about markets, he's, a, he's quote unquote applying his theories of markets to understand real world markets. They end up then being these rich things again, where human beings that look more like human beings that are social creatures that care about things like charisma and they care about things like, um, yeah. you know, values and, and what have you. And so in that paper, we say, look, even the, the and so at work there, there's an implied ideal type um, that's at work there um, that we should, that we should be mindful of. And that, that implied ideal type we say, look, is, you know, has these these social characteristics, the social content that, that his theoretical work doesn't, doesn't yeah. have. And so that's the way we, we try to um, make the argument in that paper that the, the sort of the true vapor on markets isn't the market, isn't the one that is quote unquote theorizing about markets in this thin way, but it's the vapor that's writing about markets in this rich way. Right more is general economic yeah. so i i so it's interesting that you bring that up because i think again that this might all turn on this difference between uh formal rationality and substantive rationality and that when he thinks about markets he's thinking about the early neoclassical developments i mean that's where he's coming from the early marginalist revolution yeah. and they are trying to overcome the idea of uh historical specificity uh, which in many ways also means the flesh and blood of markets and what are the essence of the way markets operate. And so they, they substitute formal rationality for any kind of more substantive rationality, which are more complicated because you have too many arrows running in too many directions. Yeah. Um, and that, that goes all the way back to your development question because at some level what Weber is trying to do is talk about the development of modernity, right? I mean, this is what his task is, is that we're, we've transitioned in the early part of the 19th century into the last part of the 19th century, into the 20th century, you've entered into modernity. And he's trying to explain that developmental process and what makes that. So you've also, in, in Solomon, also just recently published a paper, a retrospective on Weber's Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Yeah. You've addressed this in a variety of different places, but yeah. this is a more recent essay. And, and uh, so uh, what drew you to Weber in the first place and that particular spirit of capitalism type argument? Yeah. And so the, the what drew me to Weber in the, I guess it's the, um, the two two things that drew me to Weber in the first place. Um, one is again, I've said this, one is that I'm an Austrian economist, and that there are these deep links between Weber and the Austrians, right? That if you sort of think back to say the Lachmann review of human action, so, right. you know, he says very clearly, never forget what's going on here is the work of Max Weber, right? And it's that, awesome that you mentioned that because. Again, if, if you never heard of Max Weber before, but you 
were into scholarship and you came across that, you'd be like, okay, who the hell is this like guy? I gotta read Max he's, not, he's not Carl Menger or, or <laughs> yeah. Bobrick or Visser. So who's he? And then you go read about him and you find out, you know, he's cited more than you yeah. know, and you're like, wait, where, where is this? Like, how's what's going on, right? And so, right, and then, you know, and then you've got, like Lockwood himself wrote the book on the legacy of Max Faber. Um, he's trying to apply some of his ideas that the um, Mises you learn is, you know, instructing Schutz to go, you know, his student Schutz to go read Baber and try to reconcile um, what Baber's saying about the social world with what he's saying about the social world. And so there's these deep links that sort of made it. And so that sort of was, was sort of why, you know, one reason. The second reason is that he described, for me, what, you know, sort of economics was all about in a way that just really resonated, right? And so he said, look, um, to his mind that, that, that we've got to be concerned with these, you know, these three things, right? That economic phenomena narrowly defined. We've got to be concerned with prices and profit and loss and stuff like that. But we've also got to be concerned with economically relevant phenomena, the things outside of this narrow stuff that affects exchange. Um, and we've got to be um, concerned with economically conditioned phenomena, right? The things that are impacted by our economic um, our economic interactions. And so what he did for me was he opened up economics in a way that um, prior to that, I sort of, you know, reading him and I sort of felt more narrow. Yeah. And, so I, and so that's sort of what um, sort of drew me to him. And the, the Protestant ethic spirit of capitalism was because um, it was, you know, so it's, you know, it's, in many, it's his most famous books, maybe it's the most infamous book too, that, that it's a book that um, it's, it's, it's where that it occupies the space that it does for him because he called it a frag, like he gets the end of it and he himself calls it a fragment. It's not yeah. quite finished. He admits that it's not finished and it's not whatever, yet it becomes super popular. That, um, and it's a book that I think is misunderstood, which is a, a weird thing, right? And so... The famous but misunderstood yeah. book. Yeah, and so at least to my mind, and so, so maybe you, and, and this was this was true, this sort of an arrogant thing for a graduate student to, to think, but like I'm reading this book and going, it's clearly arguing this and everybody thinks it's arguing that, right? So everybody thinks it's saying Protestantism caused modern capitalism. And when I opened it up, I expected to read that. And it, at least to me, I didn't see that. In fact, I saw it arguing multiple things some of which become super useful for me. The two things that become most useful for me were the capitalism can take on a variety of forms and sort of read capitalism that would be sort of, you know, market can take on a variety of different forms. They're gonna, it's gonna make sense that they look different in different places and it's gonna make sense that they look, they look different in different sort of epochs or ages or what have you. So that was sort of one that I did say clearly obvious there. And the other one that, that um, ended up, you know, being important for me was that each form of capitalism is animated by a particular economic spirit, right? And, the, and so you had a kind of ethos, a kind of orientation to um, economic life, a kind of, you know, cultural lens through which one made sense of our economic experiences that was going to be, again, might differ from place to place. Um, and that those two um, sort of theoretical arguments, I thought, stood even if you decided that the rest of the book that had some conjectures about where the modern 
you know, the spirit of modern capitalism came from and its relationship to Protestantism, even if you decided that those were, those conjectures about history were wrong, yeah. um, those theoretical claims stood and they gave us a way forward and how to sort of study it. And so the, that paper with Solomon is saying, look, we've got to remember that this is what that book is about. We can, you know, we can, you know, we should we should still be mindful of the theoretical claims of those that import and then we should sort of really think through what the implications that have been when you when you have uh, Clifford Gertz in economic anthropology talking about employing Weber that's the part of Weber that he's employing right the, the uh, uh, theoretical claim about um, capitalism's taking on various forms and each being animated by a different spirit um, and then an approach to trying to tease out where those spirits might have come from. Yeah, I think there's a massive confusion that takes place because when you talk about the diversity of institutions and therefore the diversity of manifestations, people think that you're saying that the laws or principles of economics are being different, but their manifestations is different. I, I um, was at the beach recently and I was looking at the waves and everything. And I was reminded of, you know, Mill trying to talk about the exact and separate science of economics and the idea that the laws of gravity and the laws of the tides and everything like that are basically like they're fixed laws of nature, but yet at the same time, their manifestations in a harbor are going to be different depending on how the structure of the harbor is built and how the winds and everything else go on a particular time. It's still the case that the, the underlying governing dynamic is this principle, but you have to take into account all these other conditions that make rise of that. And that's going to have a big impact on everything else. And this goes back to your notion of economically relevant and economically conditioned you know, as well as the law, the, the principles of economics. And I think that the, the Germans and the Austrians sort of understood that in a way that the, the Anglos didn't in their, in their discussion of that, because they had already experienced a world where the institutions were fixed and given for a, a, a period of time, which meant that they, if you treat something as given, you sooner or later forget that it's even there, yeah. right? And, and so, um, whereas the Austrians were educated within law schools, right? And so as a result, then the law was always something that always was there. Politics, I mean, Hayek's degree is technically a political science yeah. or jurisprudence degree. And I think that that matters a lot. Weber himself taught history yeah. as well as that um and as well as economics and so it's it's just kind of a different and of course you know the they they weren't yet in a world of complete secular humanism and so religion is constantly yeah. a part of their background experience about and and going back to what you're saying economically relevant but also economically conditioned yeah. they you know there was very real um and it makes for the varieties you can understand the varieties, but the the right the, the 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 practice of capitalism in practice is not where the the governing dynamics are found. It's in 
what gives rise to the different manifestations is the interaction effect. I don't know if I said that right, but it's it's again thinking in terms of the of the the the, the tides and and gravitational pull. Yet at the same time, the way I build the harbor or the way I I build the inlet or whatever that I'm doing, and then the effects of particular weather patterns on that. That's what we're trying to study when we're studying yeah. as economists. Mill, you, uh, I mean, uh, Marshall used a great phrase where he says, he says, we're studying, imagine that you have a, a pendulum and you have a stone, you know, at the end of a string and you study the way that, that it, it oscillates. And, you know, that creates the kind of the general pattern that you're yeah. going to see. He says, now the problem with that is that that dynamics, that's too static. Because in the real world, imagine if that stone was then caught in, in the streams of water and it was bouncing around. You're still trying to understand that it's not just going any old way, meaning that there is no law to it or no principles behind it, but all these intervening factors. And we capture it in too thin of a notion of ceteris paribus. Right. Yeah. You yeah. Know, <laughs> that, 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 you know, kind of misses the, or, you know, the idea. Um, all right. I, I'm going to. I, I don't want to waste too much more of your time. So I, I want to come to a bonus question. Okay. To you. And, uh, and, and, and keep in mind that we are going to be talking about your book on the, do, do the markets corrupt our morals later in the semester. Oh. And so we're already going to be dealing with that, which I, I'm not just saying this cause I'm interviewing. I'll, I'd say it to everyone. I, I think it's just a brilliant book. Thank you. Uh, what you guys do in that book is you give the critics, every bit of their due. And as I said, I think I told you this once, I view what you do is you take a little knife out and you like saw off the giant. So it appears in the first chapters that you've created this giant, you know, critic of the market. And then what you do is you neatly saw away their feet. <laughs> and so it's just like going on, you saw and saw and saw. And then next thing you know, the, the next thing you know, the giant comes toppling down. Uh, which is a lot different than people who, as soon as a, as the critics rise, they chop it off with a samurai sword, yeah. you know, and, and cut it off. You you give the critics their due and then take them on. So I think it's it's really an artful and brilliant book. So, um, and you know, you're doing other work. So you know that's going on. So again, I want to ask a question of. Do you see your work like in the in the do markets corrupt our var uh, uh, morals? Is that sociological? Is it philosophical? Is it empirical? Is it some notion of all three that you're using to criticize? And what among your current projects of a sociological, philosophical, or empirical yeah. pen most excites you when you yeah. think about projects? Yeah, let me. Beyond everything else that you're doing, pedagogy. Yeah everything else so yeah yeah no that's that's a good question so i've, I've been trying to like i want to in some ways it's actually my most narrowly economic work which is a very strange thing right so it's entire one way of reading that book is to say it's entirely about how markets can work and entirely about how markets have worked um and so a lot in that book are discussions of entrepreneurship and incentives and exchange and profit and loss and yeah, private yeah. property, right? And then there's a range of empirical strategies, but you know, this is, you know, history in there, there's some folklore in there, but a lot of it's also comparative statics and there were questions in there, there's even an economic experiment in there. So there's some, you know, things that economists might find 
pretty conventional. It's conventional, right? In, in some ways, right? And so the move though it makes is, and this is where I guess it engages the philosophical literature. The move that it makes is to say, look, if you read the philosophical literature on the morality of markets really carefully, what you'll find in there are not one claim about you know, whether or not markets corrupt, but two kinds of claims about whether or not markets corrupt. Right. The, the, sort of the theontological claims that are sort of appropriately sort of centered in philosophy about the nature of exchange and whether or not that, you know, is virtuous or not or what have you. And that, that, that's, a, that's a question that is sort of appropriately left to the philosophical debate maybe. Um, but they also make theoretical claims about how markets work, right? The, the claims about what, you know, entrepreneurs are motivated by greed. That's right. a that's an empirical claim. That, right. that you know, and you know the, um, or, you know, and they you know and they make you know that engaging in market activity produces you know these neg you know more corruption or something like that. Right. It's again right. an empirical claim, and they often make those kinds of claims. And so what I wanted to do is to say, could we make headway in this conversation if we thought about if he thought through, in some sense, the moral implications of essentially the Austrian approach to understanding how markets function. So are Kuzneri and Hayeki and Masessian approach to understanding how markets actually work and what the moral implications of that might be, you know, what kind of activities likely to be punished um, with losses, what kind of activities likely to be rewarded with, with profits and, and what have you. And then to ask um, empirically, both qualitatively and quantitatively, how in fact markets have worked in the world. Do we see it? Do we see markets playing out like the way Austrians claim markets play out, right? Which is that you have, um, you know, the, the markets are, you know, a discovery process where people discover, you know, what people's preferences and desires are, where people discover, discover what the sort of the borders of their, um, you know, budget constraints are, but they also discover who's trustworthy and who's untrustworthy, right. or who's a cheat and who's not a cheat, who's a good person and who's not a good person. And right. that if to the extent that those things are valued by people in markets, they're willing to reward people who exhibit the kinds of traits that they like, and they're, they're willing to punish by sort of not paying a premium or by not, you know, not working with in the future people who have the traits that they, they don't. And so it's a, it really was a, um, and so it does spend a lot of time sort of working through the philosophical literature um, on markets and some of the sociological literature on, 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 on markets, but it really does that to try to say, okay, what kinds of questions are the kinds of questions that, say, or, you know, the approach to understand how markets function that, that, that I think is the most persuasive and intuitive can speak to, or what kinds of questions that it, that it can't. And that if, yeah. and once we sort of sort them out, then let's say what, you know, what, what it is that, you know, this approach to understanding markets might actually say about the morality of markets. I, um, I think I want to ask you about current projects yeah. as well, but, but I think that one of the really, like, very careful and clever things that you do in that book that you and Ginny do is that you, by giving the critics all the space that they, re, that they deserve, right. In terms of giving them their, their argument, you're able to tease out that 
what they think are deontological arguments are really actually consequentialist arguments that have an empirical nature. And then it's like, okay, well then let's go to the videotape and yeah. see, you yeah. know, what actually happened. You're, you're making a claim that you think is a philosophical claim, but actually it's an empirical claim and that we can actually explore that yeah. um, while giving them every benefit of the doubt on the philosophical claim in many, in many ways. And so I, that's why you create a very, uh, I mean, it's a very fair book to, I, I mean, I'm biased, right? But I would think it's an I like your biases. fair book to a person that, what? I said, I like your biases. Yeah, but I think it, it, <laughs> would, be, it would be a very fair book to a person that was coming at it from the side of view of the critics, because they would think that what they what their moral intuitions told them would be in fact the reality on the ground when you went and looked at it and then when you look at it you're like oh you know that's kind of different um and it's also intriguing in the sense that you don't just trust any one method which is belies the idea that there's one way to do empirical economics and it address or empirical social science and addresses this you have a variety of of various things this is what eleanor ostrom called multiple methods methodology and and anyway so it's a it's a very powerful book that i hope all the the students in this class will will appreciate but how about i mean currently what you're what currently fascinates you yeah so so there's a there's a so i'm working on as you know probably a, a bunch of stuff but so let me t let me talk about one um the so again, out the window, the, for the last several months now, there've been sort of riots breaking out, right. sort of all over the United States, and in fact, all over the world in, in some sense, that, that some about racial justice, some motivated by um, sort of responses to the lockdowns that you know, have to do with COVID and what have you. And so there's a variety of these riots that have, that have, that have been breaking out. And that when you look at them on TV, there's a way to sort of go to, to, to think of those things as being chaotic, right? And they have aspects of it that, that, that might make, you know, you sort of hard to figure out who the leader is, all these kinds of things. They seem to be, um, in some sense, protests turn into riots in a kind of spontaneous way what's going on there. Um, and so the with uh, Nona and I are working on a, a book right now where we're making the argument that this thing that seems like chaos isn't actually chaos at all. That you can think of riots as a emergent order. And so like an emergent order, they're of human action, um, but not of human design, but they are rule governed. Right. And so there's a, there's a, and so um, and once you think about riots in that way, you can understand specific riots generally in that way. You can then understand specific riots by trying to figure out what the rules are that are governing that sort of behavior. Like, you know, which places they've, that they're deciding to burn and not decide to burn. What messages are they deciding to put up and not right. decide to put up? Which, and what's, what's the source of those rules? Like, where do they come from and, and sort of what explains their their um, origins and what have you. And so that's the book that's been sort of out of the books, out of the things that I'm working on now. That's probably the one that's, that's sort of captured my attention. Yeah. 
um, in, in part because that's what's going on. You sort of you can't turn yeah. on the TV without it. But it's also, I mean, I should have mentioned this earlier, but also the paper that you did with Nona on perverse spontaneous orders yeah. is extremely valuable paper because so much it's it's not that anywhere that people say all spontaneous orders are benign and or benevolent but that's the impression that people yeah yeah and i mean i always i always like to point out that if you look at nozick's you know examples of invisible hand explanations he has bad ones and he has good ones yeah no one remembers that the bad ones are also invisible hand explanations just because the way that economists talk about it, they tend to talk about it in this positive light. And so I think that was a very useful corrective. And the idea that you can see the order within the quote unquote chaos, and that also goes back again to putting primacy of understanding meanings as opposed to prediction and control. It's a major way to do social science that we've lost uh, our ability to do in many ways because the techniques and the and the attitudes about the way that we approach social science is a different project. So I'm looking forward to this this project of yours. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.